All right. Well, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be again in Matthew 5. If you are joining, just kind of jumping in here with us, uh, we are working our way through the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are these eight statements that Jesus makes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which you find in Matthew 5. And they are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be called, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. as we've pointed out the past couple of Sundays together, that word blessed is right there at the beginning of all eight of these statements. And the word there in Greek, in your Bibles, the original word that's translated is makarios, which basically means happy. And this is a very uh, contrary, counterintuitive path that Jesus has plotted for us towards happiness. It says happiness lies in being poor. Happiness lies in mourning. Happiness lies in hungering and thirsting. Happiness lies in persecution. All these things are not normally what we think of as the way to achieve happiness. I want happiness is generally consisting of the avoidance of those things. But as we've been moving through them, we have come to understand what Jesus is meaning. When he speaks about being poor in spirit, he is speaking about the very beginning place is that you live in a state of needy reliance on God. You must feel need for God if you are ever to be happy. (laughs) And as long as you feel self-sufficient, self-reliant, you will never be happy. Your frame is not designed to bear that load. And then he goes on to say that an even more head-scratching, confusing statement Blessed are those who mourn. What in the world? But what we understand there is he, blessed are those who have been made to see and grieve over their sinfulness. This is what he's talking about. And so we've been surprised along the way at what Jesus is saying and what it means for us as followers of Jesus. And we come this morning to the third such statement in the Beatitudes. And again, if you're just joining with us, I don't mean to just throw out words like beatitude. It's kind of a high, churchy-sounding kind of a name, certainly not a word we use in English all the time, but it simply means supreme blessedness or supreme happiness. This is what they're describing. The third beatitude is this, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Inherit the earth. There are a number of interesting scriptures in the Bible that speak to the relationship between humility and exaltation. I want to get to those in just a second, but first, consider with me a few verses that speak about inheritance, inheritance. For example, in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, it says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. In Psalm 37, 29, it says, The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. There it speaks of that word inheritance again. In Matthew 25, 34, speaking about the second coming of Christ, it says this, And when then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And in Romans 8, 16 through 17, we read these words, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Uh, This is a a really wonderful beatitude that we're going to be spending time with this morning, but it is also a little bit of, again, just like all the ones that have come before, in some ways it's a little bit puzzling. There is this interesting relationship in our Bibles between humility and exaltation, There is a way of walking humbly that ends in being exalted. And there is a self-exalting impulse in the world that Scripture tells us will end in a humbling fall. And the main difference between the two is who does the exalting and who does the humbling. For example, here are some Scriptures. Listen to this, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourselves, he may exalt. Matthew 23, 12 tells us, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, in each instance, the Bible tells us that those who humble themselves will be, in the end, exalted by God. However, those who do the opposite, namely exalt themselves, will, in the end, be humbled or brought low by God. It is within God's power to exalt or humble a person, and he will do one or the other in response to whichever we choose. Those who self-exalt will, in the end, be humiliated. Humiliated is kind of a strong word in our English that I think is different maybe than how I meant it right there. I just mean this is the process by which a person is made humbly aware of some things. It's a process. And those who humble themselves will, in the end, be exalted. Look at Luke 14, 8 through 11. This is Jesus speaking. He's giving a parable. He says, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
I think perhaps the most surprising thing about all of this is not that exaltation is the opposite of humility, as we might suppose, but that it is the reward or the end result of walking in humility. That's kind of surprising to me. All of this brings us to the verse that we will be giving close and careful study to this morning. The third beatitude says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This word meek in the original Greek is praus, and is very much synonymous with the idea of being humble. Carries the idea of a gentle lowliness, a mildness, a a deferential preference to others. And this passage follows the same pattern as all of those others that we have already quoted this morning, in that it states that those who are meek will in the end stand to inherit the earth. There is a humbling of oneself in these days that will be followed by a glorious exaltation on the day of reward when Jesus returns. But the idea that the meek of all people are the ones who will inherit the earth is very surprising, I think, to the world because it is so completely opposite of what the natural man thinks. The world thinks, and I don't mean to just speak in trite generalities, but it seems manifestly obvious that in the world, people tend to think in terms of strength and power, of ability, self-assurance, and aggressiveness. This is how a person or a corporation or a nation secures its piece of the pie. You buy it or leverage it or throw your weight around or by sheer force of arms, intimidation, or frankly just naked aggression. You seize it and defend it as yours. I first learned this as a house growing up with three other brothers and a sister. (laughs) My mom and dad would come home with the groceries. They'd put some cookies down. I'm not doing the math. I'm going to get as much as I can. And I'm going to get it as soon as I can because if I don't, somebody else will. This is how the way the world views your piece of the pie. Get it. Defend it. Grab it. No one's going home at night worried about you except you. In one such study... Uh, this, is, this fact is borne out in study after study, and in one such study that was published fairly recently back in 2011, researchers from Cornell, Nord- Notre Dame, and Western Ontario compared the earnings of men who were considered to be, quote, more or less agreeable by their co-workers with those who were considered, for lack of a better word, total jerks. These jerks, my word, not the official term used by the researchers, were considered more disagreeable and tended to exhibit traits of being competitive, arrogant, manipulative, and they tended to value their relationships less than those who were considered agreeable. The study revealed that despite general agreement that working with jerks just purely stinks, again, my terms, not the researchers, nevertheless, arrogant and overbearing men still get paid more 18% more, to be exact, or nearly $10,000 a year, than their more agreeable counterparts. That's fascinating. According to this research, guys, it pays not to be meek. 
The meek can't even seem to get ahead at the office, and so the world might be surprised, or to put it more bluntly, they might be dubious of Jesus' claim that the meek of all people will in the end inherit the whole shebang. In fact, I had a friend once named George. Uh, I've talked to you in other sermons about this guy, George. He was fond of quoting this very verse as proof that Christianity had as its aim a goal to make people easy to control so that they could be more easily manipulated and exploited. He thought Christianity, you see, was all just a big con. And either as a pastor I was in on it or I was duped like the rest of you sheeple, right? <laughs> and, uh, what, and so he really thought that the church is pulling your strings when it says be meek and that in the end you'll get the big reward. He's like, you're all a bunch of suckers if you believe that. That's not the way the world works. They just want their underlings, he would say, to be sheep-like, unthinking, meek, subservient, or as those researchers would say, more or less agreeable. Also, we can be more easily controlled and taken advantage of. But what George didn't see or understand was that this wasn't just something that Jesus taught or prescribed for his followers. I I suppose he might have even had a point. If Jesus had come along and said, you guys be meek, but I'm the boss, <laughs> right? I'm an overbearing, manipulative guy, but you should be meek. Then we'd have, he'd have a point maybe. That looks problematic. But Jesus modeled for us something that was, in a personal way, That was, of course, very, very costly, painful, and sacrificial to him. Jesus is the embodiment of meek. In Philippians 2, 8 through 11, speaking of Jesus, it says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This uh, third beatitude is very important for us as followers of Christ if we are to really live out what the Bible has called us to. If I don't believe that in the end there is a day of reward, that there is a day coming where the Chief Shepherd will appear and bring with him the unfading crown of glory. If I don't believe that there's an inheritance coming, then where will I get the strength to say I'm not going to pursue the world or the things of the world? Where will a missionary find the strength to say I'm not going to live in a way that stacks up investments and lays aside money and and builds barns, and then builds bigger barns. Where am I going to find the strength to live a life that embraces a poverty of spirit if I don't believe that there is a coming day? 
Uh, take this verse, for example. This is a verse that's very personal to me. I have, guys, I have not suffered much. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm not pointing to myself as a, a paragon of somebody who's living this out at all. I just, if I have sacrificed anything, though, in pursuit of God's calling on my life, is that for, since 2004, I have not been able to live anywhere near my parents. And, and that, that is something that just kind of stinks. You know, I wish my kids could have grown up around Grandma and Grandpa Tate. That just kind of stinks a little bit. But I do take this. Uh, this is a verse that means a lot to me. Verse uh, Matthew 19, 29, and, and 30. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. There is a, 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 a one, if I really believe God, it gives me the strength to let go of things. When God says to me, give to me everything I want to take, I can give it to him because I believe that in the end there is inheritance if I am meek. Now let's just back up for a second and let's take a look at this verse in the overall context of Matthew's gospel narrative up to this point. First of all, it begins, Matthew, of all the gospel writers, seems intent on making the argument. We have four gospels in our Bible, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four gospel writers um, direct their gospel narrative at a different audience. There seems to be a lot of evidence that Mark was writing more to the Roman mind. Luke was writing to the Greek mind. John wrote kind of a gospel that was global in scope. It's just for everybody on planet Earth. And Matthew seems really intent on making the argument to a Jewish audience that Jesus is the fulfillment of the great national hope. He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited, prophesied one that would come. And so that's what Matthew seems intent on. So he starts with this genealogy, which makes the case that Jesus is uh, son of David, And then we get into a couple chapters dealing with the Christmas story. We're going to come back to that in a few weeks. Looking forward to that. Uh, And then in chapter 4, we have this really interesting kind of interlude where Jesus is tempted by Satan. Satan takes him and he tempts him. And if you're reading with a right understanding of what's at stake, we kind of just hold our breath for a few verses. (laughs) Jesus is carrying all of our cherished hopes threw the gauntlet on his perfectly sinless shoulders. And then he walks away from Satan with his perfect sinlessness intact, and our hopes are intact, and we can kind of breathe again. (gasps) Good. (laughs) Then he calls his disciples. And then we come to Matthew 5, where Jesus calls the disciples to himself, and he begins instructing them. Satan, temptation, from Satan, he calls the disciples, he instructs the disciples. This is the flow if we were working our way immediately before this. And one of the things I want you to see, there's an interesting connection between the temptation of Jesus and our verse for this morning. Get this, Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you If you fall down and worship me, then Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
This is the third and final temptation that Satan tempts Jesus with. And so it's the grand finale. This is his best shot. This is his best play. And he plays it, and it doesn't work. But what I want you to see is this. One of the ways that Satan tempted Jesus was by offering to give him the kingdoms of the earth if Jesus would bow down and worship him. Isn't it striking that Satan dangles the same inducement or reward in front of Jesus that Jesus himself encourages you with in the third beatitude? We're left wondering, how is the desire to inherit the earth any different from a desire to seize or take the earth now. Satan said, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you the earth. Jesus says, if you are meek, in other words, if you live in right relationship with God, if you recognize him for who he is and live for him, you'll get the earth. Is there a difference? Yes, there is. (laughs) This is why we began our time together this morning by pointing out all those scriptures that make plain the relationship between humility and exaltation. The demonic impulse, which is expressed in this moment when Satan tempts Jesus, is to willfully seize the earth, to snatch it out of God's hands. The arrogance and pride in Satan finds expression in a grasping desire for the place of God. Satan tries to sell Jesus some stolen goods. And to put a real fine point on it, the thing that Satan is tempting Jesus to do in this moment is to exalt himself. You see the glory of all these kingdoms. You can preside over it right now if you would only do something wicked. You can in wickedness seize the earth. You can make it your own. This is the moment. This is the temptation. Will he exalt himself and thereby make himself deserving of a humbling, a humiliating moment when he's brought low? Or will he humble himself and then later be exalted? You want the earth? Go take it, Jesus. It's within your power. Seize it. So yes, there is a difference between a desire to seize the earth now and a desire to inherit the earth in time. The desire to seize the earth is present in anyone and everyone who will just exert force to get their piece of the pie, to seize it, defend it, deny it to others. This is the impulse of the world. One desire is born of the flesh, the other is born of the spirit. The one seeks to snatch the earth out of God's hand, the other waits to receive it from the hand of God. The opposite of meek humility is arrogant pride. And for me, a good working definition of pride is a grasping desire for the place of God. Let me point out a fairly obvious, but I think kind of profound truth that we should all ponder and live in light of. What is in God's hands is perfectly secure. Nothing can ultimately be taken from God. Nothing can be taken from God. What is God's can only be given. The only way that a meek person could ever take possession of the earth 
as if it was given to him. The meek by nature do not seize or take possession of a thing, and God, being God after all, cannot be forced in any way into giving a thing up. Satan is deluded. (laughs) He's living in a lie. Everyone in the world who thinks that they can lay hold of a thing and hold on to it are wrong. In the end, everything we have, everything we fill our hands with, we will leave it or it will leave us, and then what? The Bible gave us a picture of this, by the way. Do you remember, uh, this is going, this is in the way back machine now. Some time ago, we studied the life of David. Do you remember this? In Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel 16, you remember Samuel comes and he anoints David king over Israel. But then comes chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. We come to the end of 1 Samuel, go into 2 Samuel, a couple of chapters. David still isn't king. There is a long span of chapters, a long span of years when David has been anointed king. He is king, but he is not yet on the throne. And what we saw in our study of the life of David is that we are living in a very similar situation. Is Jesus king today? Absolutely he is. It is an objective fact. He is king today, but he's not yet recognized as king by everyone. There is someone else sitting on the throne, which he will certainly ascend to. And he is recognized by many in the world today as the king. Saul was the king for a long time after David became king, in fact. What I want you to see about David is that he was very meek in that span of years, that span of chapters. Very, very meek. And let us not confuse meekness with any idea of him being weak. David was a man who fought lions and bears with his bare hands. (laughs) Can you imagine? He stared down Goliath. He became an experienced and skilled leader of armed men early in his life. He was a battle-hardened veteran of many campaigns in a day when killing was an up-close and personal affair. He smelled the body odor of the men that he fought with. Yet he was a meek man. And here's what I mean. Time and time again, we saw in our study, in those long span of chapters, that David refused to seize or take the throne that God had promised to him. Do you remember when Saul was going to the bathroom in the cave and David crept up and cut off the corner of his robe and and Saul went out of the cave and he came out and showed him, see, I could have stuck you, (laughs) but instead I didn't. And he had some really choice words for Saul in that moment. He said, let God judge between me and you. I think God ought to kill you, but I'm not going to be the executioner. I refuse to seize the place of God. This is the very essence of a meek humility living in these days. It's not that we make no judgments. It's not that we are weak or any such thing, it's that we are waiting to receive from God in his timing what he has promised, and we refuse, we decline to seize it for ourselves now. David was king by right, by promise, 
by the anointing of the prophet Samuel. But he waited in trust to God. He, in all meekness, did not seize the place of Saul. He waited to receive it from the hand of God. David humbled himself. Saul exalted himself. And we see how it all ends. In the end, Saul is brought low and David was exalted. This is the pattern that plays out time and time again in the Bible, and this is what is playing out right now in this phase of redemptive history in our lives. Which brings us to our last point of, the, of this three-part sermon here, which is becoming meek. It's one thing to say, be meek, and it is quite another to do it. <laughs> Years ago, as a result of an interesting time in my life, have you ever just had a season in your life where all the people who are uh, people of influence in your life, the books you were reading, the sermons you were hearing, all seemed to be saying the same thing to you at that time? I, I had a season like that where over the span of several months, I was reading a book called Humility by Andrew Murray. I lit, had a couple of sermons in that time that were... I just walked away feeling like I'd been beat up. <laughs> That's the way I can describe it. I had a mentor who started identifying some things in my life which were hard for me to hear. And I had some friends I was watching who seemed to have a quality in them that I lacked. All of this was kind of coming together at the same time, and God began speaking to me about the problem of pride in my own heart. Began speaking to me that I wasn't meek. I hated it. It was ugly. He began opening the eyes, my eyes to the problems of pride in my life. I felt convicted, and I resolved to try to do something about my pride problem. But let me tell you something. Anyone who has ever made greater humility the petition of their prayers and the aim of their Christian pursuits knows that it is a very, very slippery thing to acquire. And it's an even more difficult thing to measure. Any achievement in humility instantly becomes the basis for pride, right? And round and round we go. It's a vicious cycle. I'd start to feel like I was making some progress in humility, and I would start to look on others with contempt because I'm humble and they're not. <laughs> this, is, this is the perverse thing about trying to become humble. Am I right? Perversely, the pursuit of humility often gives birth to new depths of pride. Humility is a really funny thing. It seems the harder you try to focus on it, the fuzzier it becomes. The harder you try to grab it, the more it slips through your fingers like water. I will say this. I have been surprised at times by humility when it has shown up in my heart unannounced. At such times, I have found surprising words suddenly spilling from my mouth like I was returning a borrowed thing. I don't know where those came from, but it felt unnatural. However, when I seek out humility, it always seems elusive and just beyond reach. I think humility is best defined as possessing a heart knowledge of who God is and who you are in relationship to him. 
Humility is sometimes, I think, seen as possessing a low view of one's own abilities, but it does not really consist of lacking confidence, but rather it's a confidence well-placed. That seems more like what humility is. For example, when David shows up to fight Goliath, I think he's very humble in this moment because he never speaks to his own abilities. He just says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? He defines everybody in that encounter based on who God is and who that person is in relationship to them. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of who? The living God. Very humble statement. Not, who does this guy think he is going toe-to-toe with us? (laughs) That's not how David is. He's very confident, but he's humble. I remember once while I was driving along in Florida in my last pastorate, I was listening to a radio preacher speak on the topic of pride and humility. I lived in the Bible Belt for those years, and the radio is every other channel has a preacher, and you can just listen to him all day long. And this preacher, some of them were good, some of them were bad. This one was, eh, I don't know. (laughs) He made the claim that as a result of God's sanctifying work in his life, he could now look back on his younger self and see how he had become more humble over time. Again, kind of a red flag statement, right? (laughs) I suppose it's always a red flag whenever somebody claims to be humble. It's It's antithetical to being humble. But at the time, I didn't think about it that way. That was just a very discouraging thing for me to hear. After all, I had been sincerely praying for God to grant me more humility for like 10 years at that point. And I had done everything I could think to do within the scope of human power to become more humble. I'd memorized scriptures on the topic and sought to behave in ways that outwardly demonstrated humility even as I remained suspicious of the purity of my inner world. However, as I reflected over the years, I did not feel less prideful than when I had begun the journey, but only more aware of the depths of my pride. And maybe that's what increased humility will look like. In this fallen world, as we struggle to put off the old man, Maybe that's what it will look like. You know, the Bible speaks of pride as being roughly synonymous with our sin nature. And a complete absence of prideful impulses may be no more achievable than the loss of my sin nature. I think it's been observed, I don't know who first said this, but I'm sure you've all heard it, uh, that that there's an interesting relationship between courage and fear. It's been observed that courage is not the absence of fear, but rather a refusal to be governed by it. Courage is the mastery of fear, not the absence of it. And maybe in much the same way, I wonder if it can be said that humility is not the absence of prideful impulses, but rather a growing capacity through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to recognize and reject pride when it shows up in our hearts. God is giving us a growing ability to see that, to understand it, to hate it. But it seems to never go away, at least in Josh Tate's experience. Consider with me, though, also this, the flow of the Beatitudes up to this point. We've already talked about this a little bit. I think that as we move through the Beatitudes, we will see that they naturally flow 
There is a logical sequence to what Jesus is saying. Not only do they naturally follow one another, but they also become progressively harder. We started a couple Sundays ago by talking about being poor in spirit. We understand that to mean that happy are those who live in a state of needy reliance on God and that nobody lays hold, nobody enters the kingdom of heaven who does not feel a needy reliance on God. This naturally leads to a mourning or grieving over our own sinfulness. We look with uh, sadness on our inability, on, on our great need, the sin-stained, broken character of the world, and this leads to humility or meekness in relationship with one another. This is the, Jesus starts by talking about being humble in relationship to God, needy and reliant on him, poor in spirit. And then here in the third beatitude, he starts talking about making a shift to a person's relationship and heart posture towards other people. Our humility towards God finds expression in a humility towards other people. I think many people start by trying to become humble, meek, in their relationships with others without first coming to a place of needy reliance on God or a mourning and grieving over their own sinfulness. And they're meant to naturally flow. Uh, I suppose I've heard, I've seen on ESPN and stuff, people who coach baseball players, where if somebody starts to develop a problem with their swing or something like that, they go back to fundamentals. A coach will go back and say, well, something is off here with the fundamentals of the mechanics of your swing, and they'll kind of just go back to basics. And so when I find myself, when God mercifully, graciously makes me aware that I am having a, I'm having a pride problem, <laughs> then probably it's really helpful to go back to the first two Beatitudes. I'm willing to bet that if I am struggling with pride, I am not feeling much poverty of spirit. And I'm probably not grieving much over some sin. I'm probably delighting in sin. That's the nature of pride. And so really it's meant to flow naturally from the first two so a lack of humility in our relationships, therefore, is not the problem so much as it is what shows up as part of a deeper problem. And if the Holy Spirit graciously and mercifully makes us aware of our lack of meekness, the solution is to go back to the start. Jesus starts by calling us to be humble toward God, needy, needily reliant on him. This naturally leads us to grieve our own sinfulness, to mourn, and this will have the effect of making us humble in our dealings with other people. Guys, I'm almost out of time. Let me just finish with this. It's a fairly long block of Scripture, but it's a Scripture you're all familiar with. But I want you to see the way that this works, the way that God brings a person along by reducing them, showing them their neediness for Him, bringing them to a place of mourning their sinfulness, resulting in a meekness. And we see this in the story of the prodigal son. Jesus told this parable, Luke 15, and he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, 
Give me the share of property that is coming to me. In other words, at stake here is the question of an inheritance, right? But he doesn't want to wait and receive it in time. He doesn't want to trust. He wants to just grab it, seize it. Dad, give it to me. And in this, this is really an insulting thing to say in that culture because he's saying, I want something, I want to be free of you with your resources. (laughs) He's saying to his dad, I want to walk away from you, but I want your money before I leave you. This is a wildly inappropriate thing to say to your dad in that culture at that time, and in our culture at this time as well. Any father would just look and go, oh my goodness, what's he saying? But his dad goes along with it. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. So he takes what he wants, and he goes away from the father. Please notice that. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. He buys into the poisonous lie that blessed are not the meek. Blessed are those who just love wickedness, who indulge in it, who pridefully seize it and enjoy it, defend it. He squandered his property in reckless living, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. See what God is doing? He goes right back to the start. You must first learn neediness. You must feel poverty of spirit. This is the path to a blessed happiness. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He tries in his own power to meet the need. And that guy sends him out into the fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've sinned. What's he talking about? What's he mourning? What's he grieving? You see the path he's being brought along. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Interesting stuff there. How God brought him to this place of meek surrender along the path of first recognizing his needy reliance on the Father and mourning his sinfulness. It goes on, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf 
because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. What's the heart here behind this refusal? Well, I think it's a lack of meekness. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. There's a couple things I want us to see here in closing. I promise I'll be brief. One is, you might look back over the course of your life and just feel like, man, have I blown it. I haven't lived as a meek person. (laughs) I have been guilty of living the opposite way. But God, in a merciful, gracious way, has made you aware of it. I want you to know, when you come home, there will not be a lecture He will rejoice. He will meet you with joy. All that was yours before has not been squandered. It's restored. That's because he's a God of grace. And this second son, hey guys, (laughs) some of you have been laboring hard and you have been faithful. You have stuck with dad. And One thing I want you to see here is that, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. There is an inheritance coming. This is where a Christian gets the strength to live in a meek way, in a way that's wildly countercultural, that allows us to hold on to the things of this world with a very loose grip. It's because we believe that there is a better and an abiding possession that will be inherited by all who follow Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Father, we love you, we trust you, we look to you in trust. And God, ask that in time, when Jesus returns, we look forward to that day of reward. But God, we pray that you would help us to live in a humble way, a meek way in the midst of these days. Father, it seems very hard for us to become meek in our own power. It seems that that has to be something that you give. God, sometimes we're surprised when by the Holy Spirit you allow us to respond with circumstances or something somebody says to us or whatever with humility And God, it feels more like you showed up in that moment than I came through. But God, I'm also sometimes aware as I walk away from a conversation or something that I was planning, God, that at the root of that was not meekness. Father, we need your forgiveness. God, we're so heartened by the story of the prodigal son. And the way, God, that even though we have all blown it in many ways, some ways spectacular, God, you call us to return home and you receive us in that way. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that Jesus died on the cross, taking with him all of our sin, and we stand before you dressed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. 
Father, thank you for welcoming us in the way that you do. We are all prodigal sons. We have all seized the earth at times. We have secret crushes on the earth. We love the earth. We hoard the earth. God, help us to more and more, in all meekness and humility, let go and trust in the coming day of inheritance. God, may we as your people live differently than the surrounding culture, resting our hope on Jesus and all that comes with him, all the promises of Scripture. God, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.